Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm co-host of OnScript along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And thanks so much for listening. Thanks also to those of you who support the podcast with monthly donations. That's really helpful. Also, I would like to ask that you take the time to share about the podcast, not on social media, but in your actual flesh and blood social circles over tea, coffee, beer, wine, or, you know, your, your flax and seed glass of kefir um whatever your thing is you know uh share the word because people people are longing for podcasts of substance and i think that's what we're doing here okay um you know i'm also led to believe that giving us a five-star rating or some kind of rating accurate rating on itunes or wherever you grab your podcast help so we appreciate that as well here's brent strawn back on the show for a second time I'm hosting this one, so we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Welcome to OnScript. I'm here with Brent Strawn. Brent is William Ragsdale Cannon, Distinguished Professor of Old Testament at Emory University, or Candler School of Theology. Which is it? It's both, really. You're both. You're both. Okay. Are you distinguished at both? Well, according to my family, no. Not not really distinguished at either. Um, Is it... (laughs) And then in July, you're going to be starting at at Duke as Professor of Old Testament. So, congrats on that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And Brent is the author of a book on lion iconography in the ancient Near East. And he's uh, been on before to talk about his book, The Old Testament is Dying. And he's edited a bunch of books. And he's currently on his sabbatical. So, Brent, thanks so much for taking part of your sabbatical with OnScript. I I hope you find us restful. I, I usually do, and I want to thank you, Matt, for having me on for a second time. I know it's a distinguished, dare one say August, maybe even if you keep with this light motif of distinguished, you know, a small group of people who have appeared on OnScript twice, and I'm really honored to be included in that. Are you angling for that third? I'm hoping already for the third, especially if I could be the first third yeah the first the first third like yeah okay because, like the fifth third bank yeah the fifth third bank because i feel like i am one of these on script super fans that that drew johnson always welcomes you know i i feel welcomed when drew johnson says welcome on script super fans because i listen regularly i just want you to know and i appreciate it and i've listened to some of the podcasts even twice and by some i really mean the one i was on before <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah well uh well welcome to onscript uh super guest well um, and also so, you know matt also i want to say one other thing and that is that i take your advice seriously on this on this podcast like the other day i was inspired by what you said and there was a stranded motorist on the side of the road and i i pulled over i pulled over and i said you know new tire and carjack have i none but what i have i give you in the name of Matt Lynch, and here's a great recommendation to OnScript podcast. So, That's perfect. That, I, you know, I I haven't heard of anyone actually doing that. I'm sure plenty of people have. Yeah, well, have, yeah, but uh, I think so. And I just wanted you to know, and and your and the listeners yeah, to know yeah. publicly, it worked. It worked. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the problems is so many people, you know, they'll they'll see someone stranded in need along the side of the road. They'll pull over and offer offer physical help, and and I think that's. Yeah, you know, there's so many people that do that, but no one, not many people offer theological help exactly. uh, to stranded motorists. So, and especially techno- technological theological help via via the podcast. I did have before you start with your questions. I had one speed round for you, if I could. Oh, has this, yeah, has this ever happened it. before? Okay, no, no, no so, one's flipped the speed round around again. It's only because I'm a super fan. I, you know, I listened carefully to the intros and the outros, and you know, for for a long time now, for the outros, I've wondered if I've been mishearing it, and so I really have to ask you. So, at the outros, is you know, if this particular episode of Onscript has brought you inner peace, or and here's the here's the question: literal biblical fire or lit <laughs> your biblical fire. I have oh, that's the, I have inclined yeah. towards the former, literal biblical yeah, yeah. fire, which I think is yeah. even funnier than lit you know, your I, biblical fire. I wanted to know which one is it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think literal biblical fire would be strange fire, wouldn't it? It would be strange. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe Excellent. maybe we want to stay away from that. Maybe um, but, yeah, uh, unless it was the fire that fell with Elijah, then it would be good fire mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. Know, so yeah but well uh it our god is a consuming fire so it's i i like to think of on script as sort of participating maybe in that that consuming fire so to, consuming to light your biblical fire but i still prefer yeah. literal biblical fire i keep waiting for yeah. it i keep waiting for it mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. i'm feeling like it's coming soon yeah it, it will fall <laughs> Um, uh, is there anything else in the speed round? No, I think that... not, it's 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 not a round. It's just one. <laughs> I know. Uh, on, one more. Uh, one more. Okay. Um, do how how much do you practice these amazingly insightful and I would say humorous intros? I mean, do you write them all out, or they come to you spontaneously? Well, I uh, I I I I try to get in character. I get in I get in front of the mirror so I can see my expression on the expression on my face. This is important on um, the, in, an, in an audio only. Yeah. 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 Format. Uh, and uh, <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> I, I just, I just try to, I just try to think of a new angle on, because all, all, a lot of podcasts say, you know, subscribe, uh, give us a five star rating on iTunes. What? Hey, I want accurate ratings on iTunes. That's right. You know? No, yeah, truth um, and advertising. But but also there are so many other ways that promotion and and sharing happens. And in a lot and I want to I want to bring it back to those kind of more personal means of sharing like with the motorist or if you're at a rest stop on the highway or you know telling your 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 um, grandma and grandpa and uh, you know I, I think there all those means uh, need to be need to be explored. Carrier carry, carrier pigeon comes to mind. So, but I I think just again it's 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 enjoyable it's humorous. I've laughed out loud on my commute listening to your intros, Matt. So anyway, thanks for indulging me on this on this. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, thanks for speed <laughs> round. Okay, Brent. Last time you on you you talked about how the Old Testament is dying. Is it still dying? Uh, alas, I, I fear it still is. You know, of course, there's signs of life here and there, and people who have critiqued the book or, or come, you know, offered some alternative perspectives on it usually lift up, you know, some good examples, pockets of excellence here and there, um, evidence to the contrary. I welcome all that. I, I mean, my my book, I talked about it as being anecdotal, as being limited to North America, perhaps, is because that's where my evidence and my 
semi-empirical, empirical, but also anecdotal evidence largely was rooted. But uh, since the book came out, you know, I've had some interesting uh, confirmation of the thesis. Uh, thesis. One uh, came in the form of a of an email blast that you get these things, you know, in your in your email, and sometimes they make it through your spam filter. And this was from a, a particular pastor evangelist in Brazil, and uh, I saved it and uh, I, I I kept a copy of it because it's just full of this sort of. Uh, uh, Marcionite kind of Old Testament bad, New Testament good, and uh, we got to get rid of the the Old Testament. Um, and you know, you didn't have to squint your your eyes very much in that paragraph to to see uh, not just implicit but explicit uh, anti-Catholicism and, and anti-Jewish rhetoric. More even more recently than that, and in my own backyard, is has been the release of Andy Stanley's book *Irresistible*, um, which uh, is really a, a book-length treatment of that same theme. It's much to my dismay uh, that uh, basically blames, as, as far as I read it. Your 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 listeners may beg to differ. I, I apologize, but as I read the book, it's a it's a book-length argument that everything that is wrong with Christianity can be blamed on the Old Testament. And if we get rid of that, we'll be fine. Uh, and so it's just a... Uh, that, that should do the trick. That should do the trick. So that's kind of, to my mind, proves that the thesis, the, the book is still accurate. And in the case of the Brazilian pastor, that the pathology has gone airborne, as it were, and is, is widespread. It's, it's worldwide epidemic now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, um, so with Andy Stanley, because I wanted to talk to you uh, about him. Um, are the two of you on speaking terms? It's been rough lately. You know, we were, we talked about a golf date. It just didn't work out. I, I couldn't get, I couldn't get on his people's calendar. So. <laughs> no, not, 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 not replying to your text. No, I, um, I actually, I, I, I have not had any communication with him. He is in, in the greater Atlanta area, but uh, he's obviously a pretty important person. And I, I have never met him or talked to him about it. Yeah. Well, so I, I wanted to read you a few quotes from his book, Irresistible. And, and, and I have to say, I, I got what I could off Google Books. So. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> this is, so, so some of these might be, I know you've read I, it. I have um, my marked up copy here in front of me. I know your people can't, can't see it, but it's, it's got a lot of, of dog-eared pages, post-it notes, marginalia. Yeah, I, can, I can confirm that, that Brent has read it based on the shape of that book. Or Look at all okay. those notes in the front. Hey, hey, oh my you, you've, you've mind mapped the whole book. Yes, I did my wow. best. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, so here's a quote. Uh, I didn't have page numbers because Google Books didn't. Okay. Jesus stepped into history to introduce something new. He didn't come to Jerusalem offering a new version of an old thing or an update to an existing thing. He didn't come to make something better. Jesus was sent by the Father to introduce something entirely new. All right. What, what's your reaction to that statement? So, he, I mean, that's obviously a big part of what he's doing in that book is is the newness. Yeah, the newness. Of, yeah. So, what I'd want to say is 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 probably uh, multi-partite. It probably relates to some of the things we might talk about later in the show with regard to poetics. There's no doubt. I would. Why well, wouldn't? doubt and and I don't think anybody who reads the New Testament closely can doubt that there's a good bit of newness in the in the rhetorical presentation of of what the gospels say here and there along the way. The problem of course with hey, is that, that now that was poetic right there. 
<laughs> was it? <laughs> yeah, you said uh, along the way. Oh, you said, Here and there along the way. Right, right. There's something poetic about, um, you know, what the Gospels say here and there along the way. Yes. Okay, oh, yeah, ahead. that's right. Yeah, they rhymed and I didn't even know it. Almost like a poet. Um, but there's also these stunning things that Jesus said that are, are very much about the old things. And that uh, that's just fine. And it, in fact, it ain't broke, you know. Um, so I'm thinking about the story in Luke about the rich man and Lazarus and Luke 16. And, uh, you know, the rich man says, oh, come on, you know, send Lazarus. And, and Abraham says, no. Uh, you know, in this case, of course, Jesus in the parable through Abraham says, you know, no, uh, that's uh, can't happen. Um, and uh, the rich man says, you know, please send Lazarus. And, and, and Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And then rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham, dare we say Jesus through the parable says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And that to me is a really kind of stunning little text that that counters pretty much the entirety of Stanley's book. Because for Stanley, it's not the Old Testament. It's not even the New Testament, really. It's about the resurrection. Um, and and that kind of, and access to the resurrection through these eyewitnesses and their their records in the in the Bible. Um, but here's this fascinating text from from uh, one of the Gospels that says even you know just Moses and the even if someone comes back from the dead, they're not going to listen if they don't heed Moses. And the so anyway, there's oldness in other words too. There's oldness and continuity, not just newness and discontinuity. The overplay one. Is to, is to create a, a problem in the in the way the early church thought about it. To overplay newness would probably be would, would be Marcion. To overplay oldness and continuity might be the gospel of the Ebionites or something like that. Okay, so I mean, and and also the I guess the language of new covenant would would might lead you to think this is this is a new phenomenon. This is a you know there's a kind of radical break with the old, but the course the new covenant comes from the old testament that's right and um, and is initially given to israel and in 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 language that's strongly deuteron deuteronomic which it takes us back to the heart of that and then again you know, there's another example jesus jesus greatest commandment doesn't concoct something new you know he he goes back to the torah so is there continuity of course is there some discontinuity of course does hebrews have some very strong statements along the lines of of, of discontinuity and newness of course but there's more than the, than 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 hebrews in the new testament mm-hmm. yeah all right let, let's uh there's there's a part of his book where he's talking about how the there he he identifies sort of two categories of enemies that Jesus had one was the religious leaders and one was the romans um and he says this what Jesus enemies did not know could not have known was that while ending Jesus life brought about an end it was not the end they had envisioned his death and resurrection initiated a chain of events that would eventually bring an end to ancient Judaism as well as the roman empire in its current form later Jesus uh, so and then later he says, uh, Jesus was new wine. Judaism and paganism were old wineskins. So he he's he's driving a, a sharp wedge between Jesus and what he was initiating and Judaism itself. Right, right. And the problem here, of course, is that um, 
the ramifications are, you know, again, like I said with the Brazilian uh, email blast, they're, they're perilously close to anti-Jewish Judaism, maybe even anti-Semitism. One of the disappointments in reading that book by Stanley, there were many disappointments to be candid. Um, Matt, I mean, I'm still working through them there's, with, with professional help. But there's been a lot of disappointments in that book. But one of them was that he seems to be completely oblivious of the, the uh how close, how proximate the rhetoric comes to anti-Semitism and even could be used, borrowed, taken over for, for nationalistic, white nationalistic purposes. It's very disturbing that that's not kind of at least touched on and, and guarded against, you know, in the book. Um, and again, I, I can't imagine that, um, I mean, to, to talk about the end of Judaism, right? I mean, Judaism survives, you know, and according to, and according to Paul, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You know, there's, there's these texts that he leaves unmentioned, unaddressed. The, the new wine and old wineskins is a great little metaphor, but, you know, in Luke, again, back to Luke, Luke five thirty nine says, no one after drinking old wine desires new wine. They say the old wine's better. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so there's these countertexts. And here's here's what if I could be really frank for a second, what disturbs me most about Stanley's book is that he ought to know better. And if he does if he does know better, then he is intentionally misleading his audience because there is plenty in the New Testament alone, quite apart from a robust and thoughtful and Christian appropriation of the Old Testament as Christian scripture. Apart from the Old Testament, there's enough in the New Testament alone to take apart his thesis point by point by point. And he should know better. And if he doesn't, that's too bad. If he does, then he's misleading his readers. And he's misleading his readers under this pretense to say to set them up to be better Christians in the modern world. And it's not. It's setting them up to fail. Because the atheists that he's worried about, they're equally against the New Testament. And they're not stupid. They know every problem that, that Stanley identifies in the Old Testament lives in the New Testament too. And to act or educate Christians as if it were not so is, again, to mislead them and not help them know their Bibles or, or treasure their Bibles in the right way. Yeah, um, you, you, there's, a, um, there's another quote here I want to read. Uh, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and author of Hebrews and the Jerusalem Council have given us permission to unhitch our faith from God's covenant with Israel. Actually, they didn't just give us permission, they highly recommend it. It's stunning. No, it's stunning. No, it's just it's shocking. And uh, you know, you've had people like Richard Hayes on the on the on the podcast. I, I've listened to that one. I might have even have listened to that one twice. Uh, but in any event, it's uh, you know the, these the people have made their entire careers showing how that what Stanley just says there is completely untrue. I mean, it, you can't in you can't even look at a, a page of the Nestle Alon Greek New Testament, right, without seeing the the thousands of illusions that are going on. Um, and this is to quote my my former colleague Luke Johnson, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament is the symbolic world within which the New Testament authors lived, moved, had their being. And and they didn't just happen upon it. The early church didn't happen upon it two two centuries later. I mean you know, Stanley says things like this that are gross historical inaccuracies, that the, the Christian church kind of co-opted the Old Testament down the line. No, they had the Old Testament from the get-go. That was the 
graphe, right? That was the scripture. And so to uh, to think they unhitched, quite to the contrary, you know, Don Jewell's work on Messianic exegesis, et cetera, et cetera, they rooted the Christ event in Israel's story because they had to make sense of it. They had to make sense of how can we continue to be monotheists in light of this new experience of, of, of Jesus Christ, you know? So it's just sad. It's a sad book. I don't want people to read it. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so Brent will be holding a book burning. Uh, it, well, it, it, it's interesting because I, I I felt something similar reading Greg Boyd's book on violence, the crucifixion of the warrior god. Um, and not not quite to the same extent. Um, I think he's slightly more sophisticated. Well, definitely more sophisticated. But um, but there was this idea of of a um, for him it was the, the radical newness worked itself out this way that. For, for Boyd, the fullest revelation of who God is is revealed on the cross. And then, so that he takes as a, as a kind of hermeneutical lens through which to read the rest of the Bible. But the problem is that he, he assumes that, I think he assumes that uh, the cross as a revelation of God makes sense on its own. And then you can use it to read other things like the Old Testament. Um, but for the New Testament writers, they the, the cross... I mean, on its own, it's a it's an execution instrument. You know, you need some sense making world, like you were talking about, um, to to understand the significance of the cross. And so they consistently went back to the Old Testament um, to to then give a, an account of what the cross then meant. And even the resurrection as well. Right. And, like, you know, if I can say something about this, this I talk about this a little bit in the Old Testament is Dying book because, um, of course, there is a tendency going back to Marcion and persisting to this day of, you know, well, maybe the Old Testament should die. You know, maybe we should put it out of its misery because of all these problems, X, Y, or Z. And a, and a lot of it does have to do with Christian reflection, Christology, of course, in my mind a simplistic and erroneous Christology and, and Christian reflection, but nevertheless, it's there. Um, and part of it is this is this thing. You know, we, we get bandied about a lot of times. You know, Jesus is the perfect uh, revelation of God or the most perfect picture of, of God's love is in the cross. You know, those statements per se aren't exactly in the Bible. Um, and where do we get them from and why do we treat them as if they are, you know, dogma is a real question that I think we should pause about because in fact, what scripture gives us is um, a lot of statements about God, not just about Christ. And as you are doing with this notion of the cross and Boyd, if you actually start probing it, you realize it's, it's getting super infused with meaning. Um, and that super infusion is not bad, but that super infusion is really coming from larger thoughts about Christian theology, larger canonical resonance, etc. And again, if that if that works in good ways for the cross, it can also work for in really good ways for the entirety of Scripture. Um, and so, there's no reason to just say, you know, well, all the action is in is in, you know is in the four Gospels, and you know, really you can reduce it further to the triple tradition and, you know, and then the special material and then John, you know, I mean, that's where the action is. I mean, if that were the action, I think since I hold to a kind of rather high view of, of, of the canon and its inspiration, I, why do we need the canon? Why didn't we just get four gospels, you know, or just one back Marcy. And that's what Marcy wanted us to have was just, just one. Um, so, 
Yeah, I, I think um, sometimes it's a case of uh, I, I know you're a, a Billy Collins fan, um, and and in his is uh, I think you're the one that introduced me to that that poem introduction to poetry. Yes, um, a great where, poem. Yeah, so so he talks there about about how people will often read poems. I, I can't, you probably know the quotation, but, but how, how people will um, take a poem and, 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 and the person like this, this person comes along and, and beats it with a rubber hose until it, until it confesses its meaning. And I, and I feel sometimes like um, that's, that's what happens with a, with a kind of dysfunctional crucis centric hermeneutic that people take the cross and beat, the Old Testament until it confesses the that um, you know the, the the exact same picture that the cross gives us. You know, we we want to kind of force the, flatten out the rest of of Scripture till it looks exactly like that. Yeah, so Collins is talking about introducing students to poetry, and he wants to them to to drop a a mouse into a poem and let it find its way out or put it, put their ear to the hive and hear what's buzzing. And all these wonderful images, all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair and beat it with a hose until they find out what it really means. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's great. And yeah, you know, I I quoted in my Old Testament Dying book, a a book by uh, McGrossi, which is a fantastic book on Lectio Divina. And he helped me in this regard because he says at one point, in, in terms of Christological reading, which is just one aspect of, or one potential aspect of Christian uh, spiritual reading of the Bible, the Old Testament. He says, you know, when we say that, that the Bible is about Christ or whatever, uh, it, it is, we are speaking an abbreviated word. You know, we have to realize it is an abbreviation. You know, other other things have to be said. And to me, that was that was helpful because, of course, as a Christian, I, I care about the cross. I care about Christ. Um, I care about the New Testament. But there's also a part that that I resist when that's overdone, uh, poorly done, misdone, as I, as I feel it is in Stanley. And it suddenly, with McGrossy's help, I, I realized, oh, yeah, people are saying something. They're forgetting that the abbreviated word is, in fact, abbreviated. Uh, they, they've, they've, they've collapsed everything into the one thing. Um, and so the fact is, is that Scripture in this larger uh, two-testamented form and its poetics and, and all the rest offers us something that's, that's far more... Um, Squirrely than that, to use the technical term. <laughs> <laughs> Squirrely is a great word. Squirrely. Um, well, uh, on on that note of poetry, uh, I wanted to also talk about something I've brought up on this podcast before, which is your Theo Ed, which is like a TED Talk, um, uh, on y- the talk that you gave on the Bible as a poem. And and that's that's stuck with me, and it's... And it keeps coming back into my mind because I keep hearing that the Bible is a story. And in fact, I'll confess that I, I teach that as well. And so, because it's it's quite handy, um, I, especially for, th- for for students who have very little background in the Bible, to see that there's something coherent happening here is quite quite helpful. Um, but I, I wanted to to hear a little bit about why you think. You know, you've you've gone against the grain a bit there. So rather than the Bible as a story, you want to think about the Bible as as a poem. What are you suggesting in 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 that claim? Yeah. Well, thanks. I this this I did present this in a in that Theo Ed talk, and I've I've also touched on it in a 
couple different publications, and I'm it's I'm working towards a larger book book length project on this. Um, and it, it's but it's a little bit slow going because it's it is battling up up the hill kind of against the grain as it were this this dominance this uh overall preponderance of narrative narrative hegemony we must resist it <laughs> we must resist it not everything is a story you know so uh it would say everything's a story in fact i i came across a quote recently it's it was just a little snippet so i haven't i have to admit i haven't haven't run it down to to read the larger context, but but someone the larger story, the larger yeah. story, okay. yeah. But it was yeah. from from N. T. Wright that stories are the basic mode of human existence, um, and this was was uh, cited affirmatively. And I just thought, wow, I need to go back and read that because I thought like basic modes of human existence were things like eating and breathing and <laughs> stuff like stuff like that. I didn't know that uh, stories were were that. So anyway, for a long time, I've had this idea that that the narrative shtick is just overwrought. It's just been overdone. It's it's a bit. Um, it's had its day and it's not only it's had its day, it's, it's won the, the world over as it were. There's, there's narrative, uh, you know, um, ethics and there's narrative counseling and there's narrative preaching. There's, there's narrative pretty much everything. And at that point, when it's so dominant, I think it's time to really take a hard look at it and wonder if really everything is a narrative and what is narrative. Of course, narrative means different things to different people, but you're right, first and foremost, that the that the that the metaphor is compelling one, and it's a compelling one because it's it's very commonsensical and it organizes a lot of data for us, whether it's the Bible or anything else. I just finished a little intro to the Old Testament myself that I talked about the quote story of the Old Testament for a good bit of the book, though I ended up problematizing at the at the end by talking about the poetry genre. Um, so anyway, it makes sense. But but the problem is with the Bible is that the Bible just isn't a story, um, not straightforwardly. So if we say it's a story, it's because we've constructed it as such or asserted it to be such. Uh, but in terms of actually reading it as if it's a story, the as if is really crucial there. It 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 isn't a story. And I can say more about why if you want, but I don't want Yeah, to. I mean, I guess there's... There's one level where um, you know people would claim that any any sort of construction of something as a story is a construction. Like it, when you're doing history, for instance, you're 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 plotting things as a story, even though they don't exist inherently as a story. Um, and but that doesn't mean there's no sort of shape and movement and you know organizing continuity and things like that to something such that we could call it a story. So, um, why does it not qualify as a story in, in your opinion? So for a couple reasons, one is the way we, the way it's, it's, it's set up the old Testament and the new Testament, both, both, I think come in for this observation and then it's particular qualities, inherent qualities. So, if we take the Old Testament for a minute, you just uh, you're going to read from Genesis to Numbers. That tells a story, creation to the boundaries of Canaan. So far, so good. It's got it's got some other stuff in the middle there, but you can read it as a story. You get to Deuteronomy, you got to press pause and a press pause for 34 chapters. It's kind of a major killer of suspense. You know, <laughs> all you need is Moses to knock off, and you can continue the story. But he has to say a few words, and 34 chapters later, you know. Israel tells God, if you don't take him out, we will, because he's just won't stop talking. (laughs) 
<laughs> but then you pick up with Joshua. Okay, fine. Joshua through uh, Kings. That's the Deuteronomistic history. Kind of tells a story, right? From the taking of the land to the losing of the land. You kind of squint your eyes. You can get, get, get squeeze in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther in there. But Chronicles intervenes. And Chronicles, what, 64 chapters? Is that right, Matt? You're an expert. So that's an even longer pause than Deuteronomy. And it retells stuff. Now it's not advancing the plot. It's like repetition. And then you just all bets are off after after Esther, right? Because now you're into the poetry books that don't tell the story or don't tell a story. And the story, like capital T of whatever it is, you know, from old creation, new creation, they don't tell that at all or hardly ever. So and then you get to the prophets. Those have to be somehow peppered back into the king's material and that's that's the that's the Christian order of the or the LXX kind of order of the of the of the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is even harder to, because you get the the latter prophets earlier, right? Um, New Testament, you get the story of Jesus told not once, not twice, but four times, you know, right next to each other, and a lot of similarity. What story have you ever read that's like that? And you get to Acts, okay, fine, and Luke Acts, maybe those go together, etc. But they're I don't think they're ever found in the manuscript tradition as adjacent to each other, which is interesting. They're split apart. And then even even when you, you get through Acts, you gotta get Paul, and you know, and then you got Paul's letters and letters from other people that aren't stories because they are not stories. They're epistles. Um, so straightforward reading of the material says this is not a novel, not a story. It's something else. So then there's there's then there's these elements inherent to the biblical material that is suggestive of story. Things like cohesion and contradiction, tension and integration, you know, um, parataxis, a rough, rough juxtaposition of things that don't seem to go together suddenly next to each other uh, without without causation, without um, narrative sequencing. Uh, so you can read this thing as a narrative. Of course you can. People have done it and they're not dumb. I'm not saying any of these people are dumb. Most of them are smarter than me. But they have constructed it as such. My point is, is that, well, what if we construct it as a poem? What kind of merits could we get and what demerits in narrative could we avoid? Because I think there's there's both merits and demerits in whatever imposition, whatever macro genre we, we construct for scripture that's going to help us and maybe hinder us. I just think poetry is a better one. It has less demerits and more merits than the narrative one. Yeah. And so what are some of those merits that it that it has? I, th- I think you've made a good case that there's a whole lot of the Bible that's just not accounted for by thinking of it in terms of a narrative. And then the the, the flow of it doesn't quite work either. I, th- I think it does in the sense of like up through Kings. Um, but, you know, with, with, as you said, a few significant pauses um, and, and a double barreled beginning um, to the, with the creation stories. But um, yeah, but, but from then on it, it, it it really doesn't work real well, uh, it, you know, except the coming back around at the end of Revelation. I think that's part of it, too, is that at the end of Revelation, um, you know, if you're just looking at the frame framework, perhaps, uh, there, there's something to suggest that. Uh, but, okay, so what are, what are the merits of the poetic well, genre? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked, really. Um, yeah, well... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're glad. <laughs> well, in the in the in the Theo Ed talk, I listed four, and so I'll, I'll maybe comment on those four briefly. But in the in the larger book project that's still in development, I, I hope to flesh these out and and add to them. But one thing I would say is that poetry is all, all four of these things are. I'll start with the letter C, which I think is remarkably poetic as well. Kind of alliterative, high 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 artistry. Um, you know, so extra extra credit, I hope, uh, from the on script judges for that. Um, so candor would be the first one. Duly granted. Candor, okay. <laughs> candor would be the first one. Poems uh, are, are really treasured oftentimes, as Garrison Keillor said, because they give us a, a, a truer account than we're used to getting. Uh, you know, so that's one thing. I, of course, can, can stories be candid? Of course they can. Uh, but, but there's this kind of candor that marks poetry. Think of the Bible, the poetry of Job, poetry of the Psalms, etc. This kind of remarkable candor, lamentations that makes people nervous, actually. Uh, this is the sort of thing that, that is a hallmark of poetry, which traffics in um, not only this beautiful speech, but in the gift of observation, uh, the poet's ability to notice um, and then and then speak about what he or she has noticed. So that's one thing, a kind of candor uh, that poetry has. Um, that means we should expect brutal honesty in the Bible, including the Old Testament. That stories that disturb us, that, that's candor. You know, that's, that's, that's what we expect from high poetry. Uh, second thing would be contradictions. Um, contradictions are part and parcel of lyric poetry, and especially the way lyric poetry uh, is sometimes structured into larger sequences of poems. Um, mm-hmm. So... You, uh, we haven't talked about yeah, lyric poetry, yeah, so yeah. what is? Maybe if we could just sort of yeah. take a, a a pause here and say what what is lyric poetry, and then get back to right. contradictions. Right. So, so in Western the Western understandings of poetry, going back to Aristotle, there's sort of three main types of poetry: narrative poetry, dramatic poetry, and lyric poetry. Narrative poetry would be your uh, you know, your Homer's Iliad and, and Odyssey, uh, Beowulf, things like that. Dramatic poetry would be Shakespeare's plays. Uh, and then lyric poetry would be the other. <laughs> what, what Northrop Fry said, whatever could be profitably included in, a, in, a, in a, an anthology of poetry without being cut. You know, so if you can if you can put the poem in without cutting it down, then you've got a, a lyric poem. Um Lyric poems are different than dramatic poetries and narrative poetry. They don't tell stories. They don't, uh, and they don't. They're not dramas. Um, so, in by those judgments, everything in the Bible that's poetic would be lyric poetry. So you've got um, the Psalms, the prophetic poetry, etc. All that would be lyric. Uh, then the question is, in terms of an analog, is the is a lyric poem? Or, or a sequence of poems, a, a, a good understanding, you could still get some narrative, right, in terms of narrative poetry, uh, dramatic poetry. But the difference is, is that there's less, there's less uh, coherence or, um, let's just say, forward drive, linearity, whatever, in these other types than there is in lyric. Lyric is a decidedly non-narrative kind of, kind of approach. And one that's um, dominated by um, immediacy, really, uh, an, an event, an experience of the poem. So that's a lyric poem. 
And what poets do is they make they make arguments or they make narratives or stories, if they want to, of a sort by stringing their poems together into larger sequences. So Robert Frost said, if you have a poem that's got a book of poetry has 30 poems in it, it really has 31 poems, 30 poems individually. And the 31st poem is the whole, whole book together. Hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So back to contradictions yeah. then having understood lyric poetry. Yes. So the, the way lyric works is, is it's, it's a smaller form. Uh, it doesn't tell a story. It's, it doesn't, uh, narrate a drama, teledrama. It's, uh, it can't tell everything because it's too short. It's episodic. And especially in terms of, of the way parataxics works or other such things, there's cohesion, but also um, contradiction. There's uh, centripetal and centrifugal forces at work in, in one poem, let alone like several in a sequence. So for instance, Sharon Olds is one of my favorite poems. She writes a lot about her parents, her family, her alcoholic father. And most of what she writes about her alcoholic father is rather brutal. That's the candor part, rather brutal. Uh, he was uh, a difficult father, obviously, to grow up with. But occasionally she drops these nuggets about him and uh, or even this one wonderful poem called Late Poem for My Father. And uh, there, it's just a whole different feeling, right? Those exist in profound tension with one another. Does she hate her dad or does she love him? Well, of course, she does both. She loves and hates him, you know, and that's the kind of contradiction that goes on. Uh, and so that's, if, if we think of the Bible as poetry, we're not trying to smooth out contradictions. We're not trying to harmonize them. We're not trying to make every little thing fit. We're not looking for a, a, a linear plot progression and a climax of the covenant that exists only, say, in the New Testament. We're not looking to the New Testament to trump everything in the Old Testament. We're really looking for this this warp and, and, and woof, this give and take between the Testaments where both are mutually informative and, and educative. Yeah. And, and so, well, yeah, you, you have two others, but I just want to pause there for a moment and think about um, if, given the predominance of narrative for thinking about the Bible, what, what are we sort of losing in terms of how we train our mind to think when we, we are constantly thinking in terms of the, the Bible's a story, we're living a story, you know, the, there's a sort of cultural story. Like, what, what do we lose um, in, in terms of the way we even think about the world when we lose that poetic ability? Or yeah, recognition. I, th I think again, there's co there's complicated, sophisticated forms of the Bible story, and there's less. I'm mostly worried about the less sophisticated. Right? I think in the less sophisticated, what you lose is light, color, nuance, interest, the beauty of language, the beauty of 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 existence, um, the the horror, the terror of existence, because it can all be kind of reduced to four or five bullet points. And then you can fit yourself in the story, but not everybody can. Some people say, I don't like that story, but they might like that poem because the poem is episodic. They can really like this poem and not like that poem. I, I can really love Sharon Olds, you know, poem about her dad where there's a redemptive moment and I can maybe not like the other one as much, um, sit loose to it or whatever. 
And in fact, I think people actually, though they talk about the Bible story, actually think the way they function with the Bible is much more on a poetic level, because I think they do gravitate towards particular images, moments, like we said earlier with the cross, and then superinfuse them with meaning, and they become, as it were, ciphers, metaphors, figural, figural speech that 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 evokes, and and that's very much a poetic move, not not an irritable move. Plus, I think we we would be less concerned about everything sort of tying up and making sense, you know, if, if we, if we understand this contradictions point, not everything's going to make sense in scripture and why not? Because not everything makes sense in life and good, good poets tell us that, but good poets point that out. Yeah. And I, th- I think of, uh, you know, I, I forget if it was Brueggemann talking about Psalm 88 and how, uh, although most lament psalms resolve in some kind of turn toward praise, so there's, uh, it's not a narrative structure, but it's a there, there's movement. Um, but Psalm 88 doesn't, and it's important. He, he said it's important that that one's in the repertoire because because uh, because life doesn't always resolve, and and so there's that affirmation of the unresolved in in scripture that needs to be protected. And, and retained. Um, Excellent. And, and that it's, it's, uh, people might live there. Might people might live in Psalm 88 a long time and, and, or another people might live in Psalm 150 a long time. But what's important to notice that they're both in there. Um, that's, that's the business about the contradictions. Yeah. Okay. So, so there are two others. Let's go, go through them real quick. Super fast. Contem- the other contemporaneity is this, is this uh, notion that, that lyric poetry, especially is an event. It's a, it's a, it's an existential event. The, the lyric I, when you re-utter a poem that's, that's spoken in the eye, you're now the poet. You're now saying what the poet says. Um, and that's a little different than story. Um, there's a little bit more embedded distance in a story. You know, if you can identify with a character, but if you're identifying with Frodo, then maybe you, are wondering why your hair your, on your feet isn't quite as long or something. I, I don't know. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's more self-involving. Yeah, right? that's right. And then the last one is continuation, that, that poetry continues to call us back for more interpretive engagement, I think, in a way that, that story doesn't. Uh, it can, but it doesn't. Everyone says, oh, not everyone, but a lot of people say, you can't paraphrase a poem, right? It's a, you don't have a poem anymore. You, 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 you have to recite the poem again. And every time you recite, you can sometimes find new, new stuff. So to quote Billy Collins, I'll leave the, these four points that he says, the problem with poetry is that it just engenders the writing of more poetry, right? So, so that this, this uh, continuation thing is, you know, we can continue to come back to scripture in that poetic way, expecting to find more, even if we've heard the stories, quote unquote, a million times. Uh, that's a poetic, that's kind of the poetic uh, aspect of continuation. So those are my four C's. Yeah, I think the prophets took that to the bank, you know, like, let's just keep adding to this poetry. There's there's no sense of like, um, okay, here's a natural cutoff point. It it just keeps going at points, you know. Um, And and I think back to the my question about like how it trains our minds, I think there's there's probably a reason that we find, I think a lot of Christians find the poetic, the prophetic books, some of the most difficult to engage with. And we like, I think we I always say Christians like the idea of the prophets. Um, you know, like they're, they're, we have this vague sense that they're social justice advocates, um, but, but then actually reading them and interpreting them and sitting with them is far more difficult. And I think, I'm not saying it's because we've had this paradigm of Bible as story, but it certainly doesn't train us well to 
if that's our only mode of engaging with the Bible. That's right. When, um, Wendell, to, to read them. That's right. Wendell Berry has this line as the poet says, you can't, a great poem cannot be, can neither be written nor read in distraction. And so the problem with so much Bible reading is we're distracted. You know, we, we're distracted. If thinking about poetry makes you, you have to slow down. This is the poetic function, according to Ramon uh, Jakobson. You have to slow down, read it carefully, read it slowly. The prophets are so much harder to read than Mark. And Mark is harder to read than a tweet, you know? So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I, I want to get to, to one other thing, and that is your you wrote a paper recently on violence in the Old Testament. And, and this was a, uh, uh, I understand, to be a kind of experimental, thought, you know, a thought experiment. Yes. Um, about this, this is, that describes all my corpus, really, man. <laughs> <laughs> your, your, antho- your poetic anthology. Yes, it's a thought um, experiment. Okay, so, uh, I mean, you, you, you talk about in that paper that a great deal of what troubles us with uh, re- regarding violence in the Bible is potentially projection. Like, we're, we're, we're actually troubled by our own violence, and, and we project that sense of being disturbed onto the Bible itself. So, how did, how did you come to that thesis, and, you know, what, what exactly are you saying there? You know, I think a lot of my own, my own ideas, like, like you, you could probably resonate with this, have come, have come about in teaching, you know, and you get really good comments or questions from students or they're pushing you on something. Um, and I think, uh, you know, over the years, I've gotten very thoughtful, well-meaning, well-intentioned questions about violence in the, in the Bible, say Joshua, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point in thinking about these questions or taking them on the fly and become a kind of a verbal processor and sometimes probably speak too quickly about something and then have to, you know, back up and retrace my steps or whatever. But I, I think it just struck me one time in responding to a student years ago that this seemed to me, not this particular student, but this seemed to me at some level, this sort of critique of the Bible uh, was a bit disingenuous because of our own violent proclivities um, in terms of entertainment media, particularly, that uh, really what this student, what I myself was going ho- were going home to watch that night on TV was way more violent than what we'd read in, in scripture. Uh, and that that insight, of course, then you can say, well, true, maybe, but the TV show isn't wholly writ, you know, <laughs> and that's that's an important point that has to be taken up. But 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 I realize there's a disconnect here that that we get exercise sometimes, in, especially in our in our critiques of scripture, which are important and they have their place. But sometimes we get so exercised and then we kind of become, you know, it's the kind of a log in our own eye. Um and, you know, we have a, a culture, in, uh, especially here in North America in the States, it is exceedingly violent. Um, and it's exceedingly violent at, in all the disturbing ways. I mean, so it is entertainment. It is, um, that's how we entertain ourselves in our leisure time, by the way. I mean, this is self-chosen entertainment modes. And it's not just TV. I mean, it's not just movies, it's TV. It's, it's headshots on TV. You know what I mean? A point blank gunshot head to the head 
on TV. It's in it's in our uh, video game culture with our children, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very violent culture. So to get all kind of hoity-toity and piously offended at what's going on in Joshua seemed to me, hmm, we need to dig deeper in here and wonder if Joshua's violence really is of the same sort. And of course, I think it's not. And I think it's of a dis- different quality and a different quantity. And therefore, it made me think, well, what could explain this process? Why are we so exercised about the Bible? Part of it might be because people are like, well, this is Holy Scripture. But a lot of times it's not that theologically refined. It's not that sophisticated. It's a yeah, kind I mean, of knee-jerk I mean, people reaction. Just say, yeah, people just say, like, I'm disturbed by this violence. Right, right. And the thing right. is, are you disturbed by watching Jack Bauer kill 854 people in five seasons of the TV show 24? Or, you know, how many people did John Wick kill in John Wick Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 and Chapter 3 is about to hit the movie theaters? You know what I mean? It's just... Uh, Come on, right? I mean, so let's think about it. Is is there then perhaps a psychological phenomenon known as projection going on where we're externalizing our own proclivities or love of violence uh, onto some other location? And so it's not part of us. It's not part of us. It's part of something else. And that actually hinders us from coming to grips with the fact it really is a part of us and we need to work through it. And then when you do that, I think the Old Testament actually gives us great tools for how to contain, maybe even heal and eliminate our violence. Yeah, I was thinking when I read your paper about the the comment I get sometimes when people find out I study and teach the Old Testament, and, and that is that, oh, my goodness, all the bloody sacrifices <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yeah. that were in the Old Testament. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, while munching on your burger at Ted's Montana <laughs> Grill. And it's like, <laughs> we, don't, we don't ask for those sacrifices today, do we? No, that's um, right. That's right. That's um, a great but, point. But, it, but it's, it, it's that, I think it's also, yeah, like you said, just a lack of self-awareness about the ways culturally maybe that we are demanding bloody sacrifices on a much greater scale. Uh, and, and we're not sharing that sacrifice with the poor, you know, at the same time and, and, and offering it over to God. Yeah. So there's that, there's, there's that and profound I'm, disconnect as well. And my examples have just were, were, have been entertainment media, but I think that too is a function of projection that, that to project our violence onto entertainment media is a way then to, to not have to reckon with how profoundly re- and really violent our culture is with, with, American gun culture, with the uh, kind of the police state, with what's happening at the borders in the United States right now. These these are violent, physically violent times in real ways, with people bearing the the marks on their bodies forever if they survive the violence. So it's just uh, Joshua is is not the problem <laughs> in my judgment, and but in fact Joshua might provide some solutions. Yeah. So um, I, I want to get to that uh, because I want to read a quote from your paper. In your discussion, you're discussing, I thought it was quite interesting, Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite woman. And that, that phrase Canaanite is really significant, as you point out. Um, and you say, uh, with regard to Matthew 15, what is a Canaanite doing around still in the first century CE? Maybe her ancestors were super fast back in the day on the battlefield, and her clan's been running ever since. (laughs) Alternatively, and more likely, here is still more proof that the Bible knows of plenty exemptions to anti-Canaanitism, this one from the Lord himself who commends this Canaanite's faith. If we don't know any of that, well, shame on us. 
But again, maybe the reasons are for not knowing are more than just lack of biblical knowledge or awareness. Maybe we're guilty of projection so that our lack of knowledge is far more insidious. It isn't just a lack of knowledge about Scripture. It's a lack of knowledge about us, about ourselves. And uh, yeah, I, th- I thought that was th- that was really insightful. So, so what are some of the ways then that you think Joshua can help help us think through our own violence and deal with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I pick up in this Matthew 15 quote that you read, I'm, I'm picking up on uh, a, a, what I kind of call the exceptions or exemptions to the anti-Canaanite clause, you know, so here's this anti-Canaanite clause in Deuteronomy and in in Joshua, but but you re, you read closely. I mean, oh, this is so this is so terrible in Deuteronomy seven. You know, show them no mercy and put them to the ban. Uh, but then don't get married to them in this very next verse. And if putting them to the ban means utterly destroying them, you don't need to tell people to not marry them because they don't marry corpses back then. They're pretty. Uh, you know, they this is pre-zombie culture, pre-apocalyptic zombie culture. So there just really wasn't the you. Know, know the movies about zombies who fall in love and things like that um so what does that mean this moberly's work walter moberly's work says maybe the the ban the the harem legislation is about something different or other than than that i think that that makes sense but but then also you get into do to joshua you start seeing there's real exemptions to the anti-canaanite clause you get you have uh, Rahab uh, by confession of faith, as it were, the Gibeonites by, by shrewd deception, and then other Canaanites who just, they they escape one way or the other. And maybe that's portrayed in Joshua at times as uh, a lack of efficiency, but, but some of them, of course, continue to live in Jerusalem to this day. So there they are living alongside of Israel, and not all of it is um, portrayed as, as exceedingly unfaithful. You know, the first half of Joshua is kind of get you get this feeling of a blitzkrieg and all this. But but then you learn that there's really a lot left to do. And that's continued into Judges. And then you flip over to the New Testament, Matthew 15. There there's a Canaanite <laughs> walking up to, to Jesus. So there's these exceptions and these exceptions are sanctioned in some ways. Right. They're sanctioned in the case of Rahab. They're sanctioned in the case of of the Gibeonite. They're sanctioned in the case of Matthew 15, um, where here. Matthew 15, we, we oftentimes in our modern conceit think to ourselves, well, you know, how terrible with the Canaanites and their children, you know, here she is, she's coming to Jesus and begging for her child, you know, and, and she calls him Lord three times, the courier with all those evocations of the Kurios and the, and the Septuagint. It's a, it's hard not to read that as a real stunning connection back to the, to the harem legislation and say here, here, if nowhere else in scripture, you get clear indication that the Lord himself uh, grants exceptions to the anti-Canaanite clause. So all that to say is that it's anti-Canaanitism is is not nearly as thoroughgoing as uh, you know ubiquitous as comprehensive as inescapable as as people kind of get get uh, you know uh, uh, offended at. Um, but it's actually far more yeah. nuanced than that. Yeah, and I, and I think the the book of Joshua is provoking us all the time to kind of challenge that surface reading. Of itself, right? Like so. So Israel comes into the land, and they're an uncircumcised people, which I think is very significant. And then at the end end of the book, Joshua in his farewell speech is like, "Okay, guys, put away your idols," and and they and they they're all pulling idols out of their pockets. 
Like, okay. <laughs> you mean this guy? Okay, yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah, so, so the Israelites are uncircumcised idolaters in, in the book of Joshua, and, and that should give us pause when thinking about who they are in relation to the, the Canaanites, because it's often presented that, well, the Canaanites needed wiping out because they were idolatrous, they would lead the people into idolatry. Well, they, they led themselves into it. They were you know, they did pretty well on that front. That's a great, so, that's a great point. Of course, you, you've thought a lot about this topic, Matt, so I should just turn the table and start interviewing you. On well, your... that's, that's what I was hoping would happen. <laughs> I also want to say in, in, is that, you know, the, the book of Joshua, we can't, we can't get around the fact that it, it does have violence in it, despite these exceptions. And, and there, there are there's presentations. And it seems to me in Joshua, I, I think Lawson Stone's work is important in this regard. That, that a lot of these battles in Joshua are presented actually as defensive battles, um, and that the, the the redaction of Joshua suggests a, a, already a kind of ethical and apologetic concern about that. But there's still some violence in it, and at that point, you have to say, okay, well, you can't just skip over that. That's that's real. But one of the ways that I think the Bible continues to help us with that is to contain it, to limit it. And and that, again, goes back to the poetry. This is an episode. This is one episode. Um, and it's not, it's not the most important episode. It's not repeated extensively, like, say, the Exodus trope. And these are ways that the canon of Scripture evidence that that it, it that the that the Bible itself is worried about violence and trying to contain it. Yeah, um, and I, and I think if you look at like like Josiah's reform, where when he when there are a lot of repeated phrases that are drawn from the Book of Joshua, um, and the the way that Joshua that Josiah carries out the reform though is is not in terms of eradicating all the foreigners in the land but in tearing down the altars and religious sites. So, it, it, it kind of does what that, um, what Deuteronomy 7 seems to be suggesting on a non-literal level. Like, so, Deuteronomy 7 is saying, okay, it's not really about wiping out the Canaanites. It's, it's, it's about not intermarrying and, not, uh, and destroying altars. And that seems to be where Josiah takes it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah right yeah. so 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 that that application of the story to their yeah. life is is on that that level very so, nice very nice yeah excellent. um i mean granted a few priests got killed along the way but well that's ah, that or, yeah, there is collateral that. yeah cl- collateral damage um i yeah there there are a few other things i i wanted to touch on but i think we're we're about out of time so that that might set us up for a third Ooh. Dare, dare one, dare yeah. one hope, dare one hope. Yeah, one, one might dare. And by one, I uh, mean the one on-script listener that would like that, which would be my mom. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, she would, she would like that if I yeah. appeared at well, that time. So for for her sake, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forget forget CNN and all that. Yeah, like, no. on-script on-script podcast. Um, all right. Well, Brent, thank you so much for. We didn't even do a speed round. I'm so kind of sad. A thir- a th- okay, yeah. good. I, I'll have something to look forward to. I, I was even preparing. I was like, what will he ask? Will he ask me what needs to die? What are the best? I was, you know, I was, was going to, you know, listen to my own previous podcast for the fourth time and remember what I said. So I, <laughs> well, I do have to say that the question of what's the best book in biblical studies in the last 50 years did come from like the Emory interview question. Ooh, did it? It went back Which, to me yeah, doing that. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I'm, I'm very proud of that. I then. forget. What was your precise question? Was it 50 years or? I think it was, I uh, what is the most important book in biblical studies? 
that's, or that's been published or whatever. And I usually go soft on the, you know, it's like in your experience or that you've read or that you, or just in the field or to you personally, I usually kind of let them tweak it a little bit, but I do like to ask that question. Yeah. 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 The good old Emory interview weekend. That was, uh, you know, terrifying, but, but, <laughs> but, but good. You, but you survived. You survived. <laughs> and thrived. <laughs> um, well, Brent, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Matt. It's always a pleasure. Fun to talk to you. And le- thanks for letting me do the speed round with you. Absolutely. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.